Today's scripture is from Matthew 21, 1 through 17. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to you, or say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what, they are, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Panador. Welcome to Palm Sunday and what is now the beginning of Holy Week, as has already been mentioned this week that stretches out in front of us now, this Holy Week. It is a sacred time. It's a time that's set apart because during this week we give special attention to what are the most significant moments in all of human history. Jesus was the most important person who ever lived, and Jesus was the most important person who ever died. And during Holy Week, we are considering the final acts of his natural life, his last prayers, his last supper, his last words, all leading to and culminating in his horrific and unjust death, followed by his glorious and earth-rattling resurrection. This is a sacred time of contemplation and meditation and remembrance and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, considering why it is that his life and death matters so much for us and matters so much for all the cosmos. What is it about the events of this week that changes everything, that reshapes everything, that has people like us all around the world gathering here on Palm Sunday to remember and begin remembering these last events of the natural life of Christ? Why so much pomp and circumstance? 
over this humble, simple peasant and his final days, his final natural days, as it were. The first Palm Sunday, as it is now called, came the day after the Sabbath in the ancient world. Jesus and his disciples were beginning to make their way toward Jerusalem, had actually been making their way toward Jerusalem, and Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go into a nearby village, Bethphage, and fetch for him a donkey. The prophet Zechariah, centuries earlier, had foretold that the king of Zion, the king of Israel, would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And Jesus had these words in mind in this moment as he sent his disciples to fetch this animal and prepared to enter into Jerusalem humbly riding in this way on an animal not typically associated with triumph or military victory, but a weak animal, a lowly animal. And so as Jesus sat atop this donkey, he began to plod into the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, and crowds began to gather around him. Crowds began to form around him. These crowds were filled with hope. These crowds were convinced that this Jesus who was riding into Jerusalem was their long-awaited Messiah. They'd put their hope in him as the one who would deliver them from all the oppression that they had experienced, who would push back the tyranny of Roman rule in Jerusalem and throughout Israel, the person who would make Israel great again, as it were. And Jesus comes riding along on this donkey, and as he does, the people there have no fine banners to wave for him. There is no group of trumpets to serenade him. There is no red carpet to lay out before him. He's not on a stallion. He's on a donkey. Nevertheless, the people are undeterred. They're full of hope that this indeed is their Messiah. Matthew describes the scene to us this way in chapter 21 of his Gospel. We read it a moment ago. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Hope is a very powerful thing much more powerful than sight. Because by all indications of what the crowds could see, they had no business hoping in this man. This was a most humble type of entry into Jerusalem. There was a tradition in the ancient world for a new king to ride into the capital city of his new kingdom and establish his kingship there through a show of pomp and power, a show of triumph. 
And so typically when a king would ride into the capital city, he would be surrounded by golden chariots. He himself would be riding in a golden chariot. Trumpets would be serenading his entry. A red carpet would be laid out before him. Fine banners would be waved in his honor. And the purpose of all of this pomp and circumstance was to demonstrate to all of the people who had gathered that there is no doubt who is now king. There is no question as to whether this person has every right to assume the throne, to assume the mantle of ruler here in this land. But here, as I mentioned, Jesus is entering in such a way that would be laughable compared to those much more triumphant entries of victorious kings. Jesus is entering in such a way that would bring no concern from the Roman authorities who were ruling over Jerusalem at that time. And indeed, we see that historically, that the rulers of Rome, those who were in control for the Roman Empire over this region, they were not bothered by this so-called triumphal entry of Jesus because by every indication, when they looked at it, this was not the arrival of a new king. This was a joke. This was ridiculous. The scene is completely ridiculous. Jesus is coming in the most humble of ways. And yet, nevertheless, these people are filled with hope and expectation that despite what they see, this in fact is the promised Messiah. This in fact is the true king. This in fact is the one who will take the throne of David and reestablish Israel and throw off Roman rule. Hosanna, they shout. Salvation is here is what that word means. Praise be to the one who has brought salvation. Our king is here. This was their king and they're filled with hope and expectation as he is arriving. Meanwhile, the Roman authority are rolling their eyes. A donkey, tattered peasant clothing, some fearsome king this is. The question arises, why are these crowds so convinced? Or maybe even, why is Jesus convinced? It's likely that Jesus did not know the full scope of his mission, the mantle of his identity throughout the entirety of his life. The scriptures teach us that he grew in wisdom. He grew in understanding. At some point over the course of his life and ministry, he began to come to terms with just who he is. Through communion with his Father and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, he began to understand the full mantle of his mission, just what it was that he had come to do, and just who he was throughout all eternity. He began to understand his place in the economy of the triune God and began to see a road stretching before him that led him directly to a cross, to a horrifying death for the sake of the world. Jesus had come to grips with that by this point. He had no doubt in his mind at this point who he was and what it was he was meant to do, what he had come to do. 
But what of these crowds? How had these crowds come to this conclusion about Jesus? Why were they gathering around this humble peasant? Why were they convinced by this ridiculous scene that this, in fact, was the rightful king of Zion, the promised Christ and deliverer, the Messiah sent from God? Well, we're actually told in John's gospel that the reason the crowds had gathered was because they'd heard that Jesus had something even more impressive than pomp and circumstance surrounding him. He had power. What they had heard, in fact, is that he had power to raise the dead. John tells us in chapter 12, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him as he was coming into Jerusalem was that they heard he had done this sign. Why were these crowds gathering around Jesus? Because he can raise the dead. Because news of this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, coming out of the tomb at the command of Christ Jesus, had spread. And the crowds are thinking, if this man can raise the dead, then surely he can defeat the Romans. If this man can raise the dead, then they stand no chance against us. His army will be undefeatable against the Roman authority. He'll be able to push them back and drive them out. will be unstoppable. Luke tells us something similar. As Jesus was drawing near Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They were praising him because of his demonstrations of power. Jesus was a miracle worker. He'd done extraordinary miracles in the sight of many people. And these people were convinced by these demonstrations of power and authority that Jesus could demonstrate that same kind of power and authority in driving the Romans out, in defeating them militarily. He had shown that he had power from the heavens. Surely he would be using that to slaughter Israel's oppressors. This was the hope of the people. And this is why they lifted shouts of praise to Jesus as he came into Jerusalem. They were convinced that they would soon be free. Now, not everyone who was present that day was full of hope and praise. The religious leaders, the Pharisees are named specifically, also the chief priests and the scribes, they were not happy about this so-called triumphal entry. See, because they were sure, quite sure, that any Messiah of God who was to come to God's people would do so through them. That any true Messiah of God would only come by way of seeking the blessing of the religious leaders, of the religious elite. That any true Messiah of God would come up under them, under 
their authority, would respect their religious orders and religious systems. But this Messiah, this Christ, has shown disregard for the religious orders, the religious systems of the day. He's defied the laws of cleanliness. He's associated with the lowly. He's become friends with the sinners. He's entered into the homes of prostitutes and tax collectors. He's crossed ethnic boundaries and associated with people that are ceremonially considered unclean. He's sticking his finger into the eye of the system, the whole system of the religious elite. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they are quite displeased to see all these people, to see these crowds gathering around Jesus and serenading him with praise and adoration and adulation, lifting him up as someone to be extolled. In their minds, he is a misguided rabbi at best and a dangerous false teacher at worst. And so they rebuke him. They demand that Jesus tell these crowds to be Silent. Luke 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They said, Jesus, shut these crowds up. The Pharisees were convinced that the crowds were ignorant and misguided in their exaltations of Jesus. And they had a point, actually. These crowds were somewhat ignorant and misguided in their exaltation of Jesus. They were getting Jesus wrong, though not for the same reasons that the Pharisees believed. They were wrongly thinking of Jesus as a military leader, as someone who would bring a political revolution and throw off the powers of Rome. They were not seeing rightly what kind of Christ he truly is, what kind of salvation he actually meant to bring. And so Jesus very well could have capitulated to the demands of the Pharisees, not for the reasons that they were stating, but he might have rebuked his own disciples. He might have rebuked the crowds for good reason, to instruct them to see him more clearly, to see him rightly, to see who he truly was, to not celebrate him for the wrong reasons, to not get his whole mission wrong or turn it around or get it backwards. Yet, he doesn't do this. Listen instead to how Jesus responds to this call from the Pharisees to rebuke the crowds to turn back their praise. This comes by way of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read... Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. This is vintage Jesus. Flipping the concerns of the Pharisees 
on their heads. The Pharisees are concerned that the crowds are getting Jesus wrong. And in fact, they're right. The crowds are getting Jesus wrong. And yet, Jesus here, full stop, says to them, out of the mouths of infants and babies, God has prepared praise. In other words, ignorance cannot disqualify worship of Jesus. We do not have to get Jesus right when we come to him. We only need come to him. Jesus does not rebuke worship of him, period. No matter how it comes, no matter why it is that you come, no matter what your motives are for coming, no matter how wrong-headed you are when you come to him, he knows you are in the right place. Only come to him, and he will teach you his ways. Jesus is in effect saying, I'm not concerned with whether you're getting me exactly right, with whether these crowds are getting me exactly right. My only concern is that they're getting me. My only concern is that you are getting me. If you come to the right person, come for the wrong reasons, as you will, you are already home. Some of you, many of you likely, are newer to the faith, and you may wrestle with feelings of anxiety as to whether you are getting this whole Christian life right. Some of you have walked with Jesus for many years, decades even, and yet you may still be weighed down by this fear, by this shame even. Why don't I have this Christian life figured out more? Why am I still so lacking in wisdom? Why am I still such a mess? Why do I still have so much folly? Why do I not understand as much as I think that I should? Whether you are old or young in the faith, hear these words of Jesus. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus doesn't rebuke worship of him. He does rebuke faithlessness. In fact, we see that in the very next scene, him going into the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers there, driving out those who would turn his house of prayer into a den of thieves. Jesus would have the temple be a place of relationship and communion with him, not a place where those who are ignorant those who don't understand are taken advantage of. He does rebuke faithlessness, but he does not rebuke these crowds. He receives these crowds with so much tenderness. You know what it's like? It's like a mother receiving the clutching hands of her newborn baby. A newborn baby doesn't even know what a mother is. He or she just knows to reach for her. Just knows, I need that thing. I need those things. <laughs> There's life there for me. That's where life is. 
This is how Jesus receives people. He doesn't need us to know exactly who he is. He doesn't need us to understand everything about him as though we could. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's existed before existence. He is all. How could we possibly wrap our heads around him? We are as babies, newborn babies, clutching for him. There is life there, I think. There is hope there, I hope. We just need him. And Jesus does not rebuke the clutching hands of any child. You see how patient he is with people here. These crowds are getting him terribly wrong, and yet he is defending their praise. He is receiving their praise. He is far more patient than we are. I should confess, so often I have made it my mission as a Christian pastor to tear down any wrong thinking about Jesus. And I want to say to all of you, if you have ever felt as though I were stepping on your worship for the sake of deconstructing wrong thinking, I'm sorry. Jesus would do no such thing. He welcomes you to himself. He welcomes nursing babies to himself. He welcomes the immature to himself. Is it a good thing to grow in our understanding? Yes. Is it a good thing to learn? Yes. Where do we do that? At the feet of Jesus. We don't learn who he is before we come to him. We learn who he is from his very counsel to us. We sit before him and he teaches us his ways. He teaches us who he is and he teaches us who we are. And the only way to begin a life of growth in Jesus is to sit before him as a nursing baby, is to come to him in all your folly and all your immaturity and learn from his counsel, to rest in his counsel. He will have you no matter your understanding. And he will teach you from wherever you are. He longs to teach you. He longs to be with you. No matter what reason you come to him, he will not turn you away. The truth is, we all come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Sorry. (laughs) That's just how it goes. I have heard so many testimonies, I'm sure you have too, over the course of your time in the church, that are absolutely (laughs) cringe-inducing. What a lovely thing that is that God would draw us to himself in our folly, would not insist that we have wisdom in order to find our way to him as though we could concoct any wisdom on our own. He receives us in the simplicity and immaturity of a nursing baby. Maybe you've heard testimonies like the ones I'm referring to, a common one. I made a deal with God. You hear this, right? Lord, if you just give me this low interest rate on my mortgage. (laughs) Lord, if you can just deliver this free parking spot, then I will serve you with all that I am. (laughs) Or, I think church would be a lovely place to find an attractive, 
tight-skinned young spouse, right? That's actually a bit of my own story and why (laughs) I came to the faith. It wasn't looking for a spouse that first brought me to church, but she sure made it easy to stay. (laughs) We all come for the wrong reasons. I had one guy tell me, he said, I studied all the world's religions, and I became a Christian because Christianity was the only one that promised I would become rich. (laughs) (laughs) Well, brother, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Uh, In case you're wondering, it makes no such promise. (laughs) But you see, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why you come to Jesus, only that you come to Jesus. He is the Savior. He is the person who matters, and he turns no one away. He rejects no praise, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how foolish. He says, you're mine now. Sit at my feet. Learn my ways. Sing my name. There is no litmus test for friendship with Jesus. He welcomes all. Jesus answered the Pharisees, I tell you, if these crowds were silent, the very stones would cry out. There is a longing in creation, in all of creation, to worship the Son. There's a longing in every one of us to worship the Son. That's why you're here, and you may not even know that. But there is a longing in me, and there is a longing in you to extol the name of Christ because there's no one like Jesus. He is matchless in righteousness. He is the just king. There is no limit to his power, and yet also there is no limit to his love. He would pour out all that he is for any person. He would pour out all that he is for every one of you, for each one of you, no matter your story. He would empty himself for you. How do I know? Because he has. This is what he has done for the sake of the world, poured out everything that he had, set aside everything that he is, emptied himself and made himself nothing for the sake of demonstrating the love of God to you and to me, sacramenting the love of God to us teaching us how patient and lovely God is, how much it is that God would have us. This is a person worthy of worship. This is a person worthy of being lifted up. This is a person worthy of loving, worthy of obeying, worthy of knowing, worthy of being known by. Jesus is the tenderness that your heart longs for. He is the justice that our world craves. He is the beauty that makes us weep. There is no one like Jesus. And when he drew near near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
Jesus does not rebuke our praise. On the contrary, he is filled with compassion for our weakness. He's filled with compassion for our frailty, filled with compassion for our blindness. He would have us come to him that we might rest in his counsel. St. Augustine once said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We all get Jesus wrong, but he didn't come to Jerusalem to rebuke the crowds. He came to Jerusalem to be among them, to be with them, and finally to die for them. So too for all of us. Hosanna, painted door. Salvation is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that he has come near to us. Thank you that you have not held back your son. But you have offered him. You've offered all that he is, that we could see him and know him, love him and be loved by him. Lord, I pray that you would rescue us from our pride or our egos that would prevent us from coming to him as nursing babies, that you would lead us by your spirit to the feet of the Lord. Teach us that we would learn from him and know his ways and worship him. And grow us up, Father, into the fullness of who he is. Make us into people like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.